Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a sunny day in a rather deserted city of Westminster in these current times as once again we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on the topic of leadership. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by James Sinclair. James is the CEO of the Partyman Group, encompassing a number of businesses including Children's Soft Play Centres and the Marsh Farm Animal Adventure Park. James, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you very much Scott, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here as well. Um, yeah I think summed up, yeah we're, we're a business we've got 450 staff um, we do about annual sales about £12 million um, and right now coronavirus has well and truly put our business into hibernation but we're like a grizzly bear ready to wake up and go again. That's certainly great to hear. And it's one of the uh, the biggest tests um, of leadership in uh, current times, isn't it? Um, it's fair to say as businesses have had to really adapt and feel their way through this pandemic. And in many time, in many ways, I suppose, it's uh, felt like the blind leading the blind, really. And businesses really had to get to grips with that and adapt to really find its way through. Yeah, I think I think what we've done as a business is we've tried to pivot and work out what we can do. So, for example, at our farm shop, we've opened, uh, sorry, our farm visitor attraction, we've opened a farm shop. Um, and what we opened, first of all, was a drive-through farm shop where people could yeah, drive into our car park and we put all of their goodies in the boot of their car without any contact situation. We built a website pretty much within three days to be able to facilitate that. Um, we've also um, my online training platform I run a business training thing called Entrepreneurs University which was like live seminars and events and we've moved and pivoted that all online Um, the, the, the situation that we're going into now is making sure that our businesses are, we're in survival mode. We are surviving, but we want to get thriving. Um, and what that looks like in the future depends on the measures that the government takes. You know, I, I've heard today about the furlough scheme is going to be, you know, part shared by the employer. But when we're a business like us, where we was turning a million pounds a month and now we're turning, you know, sort of a hundred thousand pounds a month, how can we be expected to pay into this? You know, there's, there's some real anxieties amongst business owners. But uh, I suppose what, what what is leadership is the the question that that jumps into me, and I think this 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 this. I think there is a difference between leadership and management. Mm. The, my job in our business is to say, look, this is where we're going to go, but it's management's job to say this is how we're going to get there. And I think what's happened over the last sort of twenty years, um, everyone wants to be a leader and lead people, but they forgot the magic in management. Decent quality management is what makes the stuff happen. Um, and leaders should say, how are we going to get there? You know, you need good quality management. And that's what we've always prided ourselves in our organization. I'm attracted more to great management than great leadership. And whenever you see great management, that's when you see consistency, quality, and good stuff happen in an organization. I think that's absolutely right. And I think um, a key part of management is people management as well, because without a team of people around you, essentially as a leader, you're not really leading anything and being able to adapt your approach to cater for different people with different personalities. That's also a huge element of leadership in itself, isn't it? And management. Yeah, yeah I mean, I'm, I'm a, that's what I meant. Yeah. As in terms of people management, if you look at the world's greatest organizations, there is a really good management structure, whether it's a religion, whether it's an army, um, whether it's a private 
school, you know, you, you usually need just one leader, but then you need really good quality management to get stuff done. I, mean, I look at our Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, my, my view is of that man, um, that he takes very much chairman of the board approach and assembles great management around him. When I've been watching him on his, you know, take daily press briefings, I mean, he never answers a question he's not sure of. He immediately goes to the management, i.e. the experts, the Professor Chris Whitties or whoever it is that's joining him to tell how they're going to manage the situation. And I, and I think that is the smart way to be. You know, if you try and lead and manage, then you will burn yourself out and you'll get nowhere. You need to keep the two separate. I think that's absolutely right. I and mean, as you find that as you are developing business as well, don't you, that need to delegate absolutely. responsibility and beginning to let go as well and having the courage to do that, that's of huge importance. And I think what's what I've always done in my career as, you know, well, you could call me an entrepreneur, I suppose, is that I've always only done the stuff that I'm good at. So if I'm not good at something, I buy it in. You know, I don't try and force myself to do something that I'm not passionate and good about because if someone else is better than me at doing it, why don't I just double down on the stuff I'm good at rather than try and work myself silly to do stuff that I'm not good at? Um, and, and, and that's what I've done throughout my whole career. I cannot wait to buy people in. In fact, I have a formula for success in business, and I call it this, E plus M equals S. That's entrepreneurship, and that's your leadership bit, plus management equals success. And I think people need to start waking up and smelling the chicken, if you like, that micromanagement is not a bad thing. You know, if you look at great companies like McDonald's, micromanaged, Apple, micromanaged, you know, and people... You know, people don't want to be micromanaged, but they need to be micromanaged until they've got to a level of where they really know what to do. So, for example, you might not need to micromanage a a surgeon or an air pilot or um, or a doctor, but those people have had such a degree of training that they know how to do everything to the micro detail. You wouldn't want a heart surgeon open you up without at least fifteen years of micromanagement. And exactly, I'll put that artery over there. I'll put that thing over there, and I won't kill the person that I'm operating on. You want that pilot that flies you over 70,000 square or 30,000 square feet, 30,000 feet in the air to absolutely know what they're doing subconsciously and have that much training, that much micromanaging training. And the same is for everything in business and everything in organizations. You've got to make sure that you understand people can only lead themselves once they've um, had detailed micromanagement in the sector that they operate in. And that's just my strong belief. I think that's absolutely right. And um, also what you've mentioned um, as well there is um, the need to obviously surround yourself with people who are better than you. And I think um, Nelson Mandela said that um, as well, didn't he, as a quote himself. Um, It's important to do that because you can then double down on the things that you're good at while other people can focus on other aspects. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's so, so important. And we talked an awful lot there, of course, about um, your own uh, leadership style, um, as it were. But what would you say have been some of the key influences behind that as you've developed through your career, James? Well, this is a bit of a hot subject, really, at the moment. I'm, uh, when I was 16, I read the book Losing My Virginity by Richard Branson, and I know that there is, he's in the press and there's a bit of negativity around him. But he really gave me permission, you know. When you look at successful entrepreneurs and self-made people in the United Kingdom, and this is a fact, 35% of self-made millionaires in the United Kingdom are dyslexic. And I think dyslexic people have got a bit of an unfair advantage. At first, they might not seem to have an advantage, but... They're given permission 
at such a young age that if they can't do something, you find another way of doing it or just play to your strengths. And what we're doing in our education system here in the United Kingdom and indeed in many developed countries around the world that you're forced to, you know, we're brought up in the UK. If you don't succeed, try, try again. Well, why? You just do what you're good at. And Richard taught me in that book, Losing My Virginity, he sort of told, you know, when I was listening to him, he said, you know, I couldn't do this and I couldn't do that. So I just bought this in and I just bought that in. And they gave me real permission. I think that's why we've managed to grow so successfully over our 15 years of being in business. Based on that thesis that you can buy it in when you're not sure, Mm, I think that's absolutely right. And I think um, that Richard Branson is an incredible example of um, somebody out there who is an inspiration, who um, is um, a visionary for sure. Um, but I also think that one of the greatest teachers out there, you have, of course, you have your inspirations and you have your mentors, but one of the greatest teachers is also experience for aspiring young leaders out there as well. Absolutely. And going out there yeah. and trying things, um, that's something that you can't necessarily teach, isn't it? Well, absolutely. I mean, what you can do, though, is, you know, success leaves clues. And I tell lots of young entrepreneurs this. In fact, I often get asked to speak in schools and stuff and talk to kids that don't really want to be in the education sector. But the teachers have identified that these people actually do have something and they could be really good. And, it, and here's the thing that, that I always say, I always say to the kids, that, look, if I could get you eight hours with a billionaire and that billionaire is the founder of Nike for 20 quid, would you do it? And they all go, yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd pay 20 pounds to spend eight hours with the founder of Nike. And I said, well, look, there's this book called Shoe Dog. You can get it on Audible. You can actually buy it. And he will tell you exactly the trials, tribulations on how he built Nike. And you can just read it and swipe at the ideas and deploy the ideas. And now we have such access to information, whether it's YouTube, podcasts, books, online training programs with successful people telling you exactly how they've done it. And you can just literally swipe and deploy it. You can learn and then implement. Um, and, and that's what I think great leadership is. is, is it's not it's like saying how we're going to get there, but actually implement what you say you're going to do. And then when you implement, people start believing you more and they give you more responsibility. And then you become an even more powerful leader. And here's the thing. When people know that you delegate well, but you also delegate to the right people, I mean, that, that really is what great leadership is, knowing who to be the management. <laughs> that's that's the real trick to it. That's the magic trick to it. It's, yeah, I'm the leader. I'm taking the decisions going forward, but I am going to assemble the best quality management and actually work out what that best quality management looks like to drive this organization forward. And that's what I've been doing for my whole career. You know, when I set up a chain of Danish, I'm a Danish, I'm just passionate about family entertainment. And I knew that adding a Danish to our business is really good. I employed a manager and I sacrificed my personal income for six months when I was a startup business back then to pay that manager and hey presto now we've got six day nurseries uh, and, and that part of our business does in excess of three and a half million pounds worth of revenue and that was a that was a, a smart decision to make I, and, and and I continue to make those decisions like in our farm shop I've just been talking to our commercial director I said look, look when we all go back to normal you know our job is to go out and find the best possible manager for this business to drive it forward we started it but the management finish it see when, when I think about leadership when I really someone asked me I said look a leadership you know, what most organisations are doing is they're building a house without a set of architectural plans leadership is about saying look this is the set of architectural plans this is what I want built here you go now you go and deliver on it and most people are just 
they expect everyone to think like them and not everyone does think like you especially entrepreneurs they're desperately guilty of this they just expect everyone to go and do the impossible whereas an entrepreneur will do the impossible most people just want to do the possible but to help them do the possible you've got to give them a framework to work to and that's why I, yeah, just a well written plan get yourself out of the environment this is what great leaders should do and you know, Bill Gates does this he has Think Week if you watch his documentary on Netflix every single year of his life he goes goes out and he does Think Week and he thinks on his own exactly about what he wants to do and he gets it, jots it down in a notebook and actually plans what the future looks like. Getting out of environment because when you get out of environment, you think better, you think more creatively um, and you find the solutions to the problems. And I do that all the time. You know, I get out of environment and I solve the challenges that I have or think better. And I continue to do those things and I will always continue to do those things. Some incredible points uh, that you uh, make there, James. It's so important to be able to take people with you as a leader and as a manager, but it's all easy. It's easy saying that, but it's very difficult, um, of course, implementing the strategies to actually make that possible, as you say. But also, quite importantly as well, you mentioned that... um, that story about of course sacrificing personal income for a little while in order to hire a manager that for me is very much focusing on the long term rather than short term gain and that is one of the best messages you could possibly give to anybody looking to make it as a leader within business especially isn't it don't lose sight of the long term yeah and things take a lot longer than people expect to do i always you know you should always put a finish date on whatever whether it's in government whether it's in a, a, a school, an organization, a charity, or indeed a business, you should say, look, this is what the thing that we're trying to create looks like when it's finished. And once people can understand the vision and understand what the finish of that vision looks like, like that's what I'm talking about, the architectural set of plans to build a house. You know, what most people are doing is they're building this house, whatever the, 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 the task is. Again, yeah, we sort of want the garage over there. We put a roof on it. Should we put a roof on it? Should we have a flat roof? Should we have a peaked roof? You know, and all of that waste of time that goes into it. Actually, if you spend a bit of time and say, look, this is what the finished product will look like, then everyone can work towards that. And you get so much more done. And that will um, actually help solve lots of problems in an organization. I think that's absolutely right. And if we think about great leaders and uh, great managers just for a moment, uh, James, do you think that they are born with certain qualities that make them good at what they do? Or do you think it's something that you can indeed develop as you go through your career? Uh, you know, that, that's, uh, that's just, I, I do believe that some people are much more motivated and they have hunger more than most. And that, that is DNA. The motivation is DNA. But you know, with enough practice, you just get better and better. Am I a better leader? Do I understand the assets and the facets of business more than 15 years ago when I started out? Yeah, absolutely. But my hunger and motivation to be better was always there. And I I think that's the 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 the, the sets the, the the good from the great or the average from the good is if you are hungry to constantly improve and I think this is the, um, the 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 big thing about successful people is they continuously learn themselves they continually read books they continually go to seminars listen to podcasts they want to better themselves and crucially you know one of the biggest things as a leader a leader that I think is really important when you got it wrong or someone's got a better idea than you go with that better idea let others make decisions as long as it meets that vision plan that you had in the beginning and i think if you collect all those things together 
Um, and understand, yeah, I, are leaders born or leaders made? I think some leaders are born because they have much more motivation to get up and get stuff done. Um, those, that is an absolute, you just meet some people that just are such go-getters. And because they're go-getters, they get more stuff done. But the ones that are really good are the go-getters that are motivated, that want to continuously learn and improve themselves. There's a great book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And the habit seven is sharpening the saw. And what a lot of people do is they're, they're cutting down their forest, but they're never sharpening their saw. So, yeah, they cut it down, but they put a lot more effort into it. But if you actually take some time back and actually sharpen your saw, metaphorically, this could be reading books, listening to podcasts, going on training, listening to seminars, then you actually get better. And then you can you know, prune your forest a lot more quicker and more efficiently. And that's really important. The more you learn, the more you earn, the more you learn, the better you implement and the better you lead people. You must be constantly learning. I think that's um, absolutely right because we're not ever a finished article, are we? Even as a leader, it's constantly no. a learning process. And even now, I mean, you know, other people, the likes of uh, your Richard Branson's, your Bill Gates, they're probably still making mistakes here and there. But it's all just a case of learning from that, isn't it? And I think in some ways, it's impossible to be a good leader or a good manager without having the experience of slipping up once or twice and then embracing that as a learning curve. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And um, if you could actually go back, uh, James, and maybe change one or two things that you did um, a decade ago, would you actually take the opportunity to do anything differently or would you stick with the learning curve that you've gone on throughout your career? Yeah, if I I went back more now, uh, if I had my time again, I would, you know, I was always quite an avid reader, read some books and, you know, you know, sharpen my metaphorical saw, if you like, but I didn't do enough and I don't do enough now. I do more now than I did um, 15 years ago, but I just wish I did more. I wish I, um, you know, wrote more. I wrote three books, Getting Customers, The Experienced Business and The Millionaire Club. I'm just writing the fourth one called The Dream Team about leadership and building a great team around you. Um, very much some of the stuff I've been talking about today. Um, but I, I wish I wrote books more earlier and uh, I wish I'd, um, you know, done more. I mean, I've done more than most, and I know that, but I'm always disappointed with my achievements, which everyone around me goes, James Carbisher, I've done half the stuff you've done, but I, I, I always think that I can do more, and I haven't pushed myself as much as I should have. Um, so, yeah, and there's some certain sectors in business I would have, I wish, wish, wish that I'd invested more time into digital marketing back then, 10 years ago, when it was such a, I knew it was coming, but I just thought, yeah, and all the other things I'm doing are doing really well, but I wish I'd have put some more time, effort and energy into that. Exactly, because business is having to continue to innovate, especially in times such as this, in order to seize upon the market opportunities that are there, for sure. And My favourite saying on business is this, if you don't innovate, you're going to evaporate. Mm. If you don't innovate your leadership, your leadership will evaporate. But the, the, the fundamentals of decent quality management um, must always be there. It's all about leadership and management. That's what equals success, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, yeah, so there we go. Oh. Anything else you'd like to ask me? I've enjoyed this. For sure. I mean, I think uh, before we finish up, James, it would uh, certainly uh, help to uh, have a look at the uh, the future and uh, the longevity of uh, the Partyman Group going forward. So concerning the next 12 months and not just getting through the COVID-19 situation, but also your ambitions for beyond the pandemic, once we emerge from the other side, what do you foresee happening um, at that point in time? 
So, so number one, the fundamentals of our country are very good. I am very excited about the future, and I'll tell you for why. The UK is a great place to do business. It's the fifth biggest economy in the world, and I think we should be very happy that we've got a majority government. Whether you vote blue or whether you vote red, we haven't got to worry about a general election for the next five years. If you look over the pond into America, that's going to kick off in November. I mean, I just feel unbelievable. Can you imagine? They're just going to start getting out of this coronavirus, and hey, now we're having a big election for the next president, and that just distracts everyone. If you look at Ireland next door to us, they've got a three-way party with just enough majority. So not, that, that's just a, you know the horse racing that happens like what we saw when Theresa May just had a nice edge majority and you know, you, you, if some of your MPs don't play the ball, you don't get stuff done. The same as in Germany, Angela Merkel's holding on to power just by a thread. The same in France. I, I just feel fantastic that you know we've got five years of a majority government. We can get through this um, and I think that you know, we have a great legal system we've got a great financial system we've got people that want to invest in the UK um, we've got fantastic talents here in the UK people are raring to go we've got great entrepreneurs we're good people and um, we, we're trusted around the world UK PLC as a brand is very much trusted um, and I, I see us coming through this in all of our glory I think yeah we've got, we're in for a tough 12 months but not as tough as everyone's making out to be I think when you look at last the, the last pandemics and wars that have happened over the last 100, 150 years, you see that people return back to normal very, very quickly. After 2008, 2009, everyone said, oh, it's never going to, banks are never going to lend money. Businesses will never start. You know, yes, people still bought houses, still had children, still got jobs. The economy's grown. And I think if you think about it as an elastic band, a, you know, we're stretching that elastic band right now and everything feels really tense. But if you let that elastic band go, it returns to its normal normal shape and people's habits go back to normal. Yeah, and I think like even in 18 months' time, the airline industries will be back to normal, um, houses will be being built, new jobs, new businesses. But do I think we've got a bit of a tough time for the next six to nine months? Yeah, absolutely we do. But here's the great thing. More great businesses and more millionaires are created in recessions and downturns because there are some people that strike for opportunity. And if you can get your business through the next nine months to 12 months, you've got a really strong businesses around stay for the very long term. And that's down to great leadership to make that happen. You've got to think positive, make the positive stuff happen, not dig your head in the sand and not see the challenges ahead. So get through those challenges, write it down, make a plan, get yourself out of the environment and lead on through and you will soar to success. I think that's absolutely right as well, because there are market opportunities that are going to be out there. There will be more market capital available. And it is changing times as well. It's a change in times um, in terms of the way that we work and also past this year, all going according to plan. The post-Brexit transition period will be gone and we will be operating outside of um, the bounds of the European Union too. So in that sense as well, regulations will be changed and there'll be new ways for people to go and do business as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited. The UK is a great place. People need to, you know, this is not some third world country. It's the fifth biggest economy in the world. And people want to do trade deals with us and we've got a majority government. Yeah, we've got loads of talent as well. The talent that's in this country, whether it's pharmaceuticals or fintech, um, entrepreneurial talent, legal talent, financial talent, all of that stuff. And that talent wants to stay in the UK and, and that's good news.
It's hugely good news. Um, we are just about James M out of time on the episode uh, today, unfortunately. But I have to say, I mean, in terms of this as an experience, it's been a most insightful and most enjoyable uh, one having you on uh, today's programme. And you know what I think would be fantastic for the listeners? I think once we start to see the market environment changing and business really roaring to success once we are through this pandemic in the next few months, we can maybe have you back on the air with us to talk about how what has changed and just how the group is getting on as well. But got to say, it's been a wonderful experience having you um, on today and I will be looking forward to uh, touching base again in future. Thank you very much for joining us. Bye-bye. It's been wonderful, James. Do take care and do stay safe in the meantime with everything still going on for sure. Cheers. That was James Sinclair, the CEO of the Partyman Group. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, but also an active member of the House of Lords and a former Labour MP and Secretary of State. Now, Lord Blunkett um, is one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, despite being blind from birth. He held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet when he was Prime Minister, and also he was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, the constituency that he served for 28 years. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett, and that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19. Uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm -hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all of those who can. Uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, 
both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain, and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms 
about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary 
often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. 
deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of, thinking global but acting local we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by 
COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. 
Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has 
uh, Mr. Keir Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. 
Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.